You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Oh, I'm a good old rebel, now that's just what I am. For this fair land of freedom, I do not care a damn. I'm glad I fit against it, I only wish we'd won. And I don't want no pardon for anything I've done. I hate the Constitution, this great republic too. I hate the Freedmen's Bureau in uniforms of blue. I hate the nasty eagle with all his bragging. We, that's how we start today's episode in Media Res, Dr. Flamina. I hate the Constitution. I hate the Freedmen's Bureau, too. Thanks for joining us. So you, you asked us to, to play these verses to start out today's episode from Under the Rubble. And it was written by one of General Lee's officers, uh, who was a, a Virginia planter. Why, other than to engage in some, some childhood memories for you, did you want us to play this? Well, uh, the uh, apparent author of the song, or at least of the lyric, uh, Major James Randolph was uh, served on uh, Jeb Stewart's staff. The verse, uh, the the uh, technically, I guess it's the uh, third verse on hating the Constitution, is often left out in pop culture versions. For example, the version done by uh, Hoyt Axton, which I think gets the most play on YouTube, uh, the Ry Cooter performance in the very good Ang Lee movie, uh, The Long Riders. I don't know if uh, the objectionable part is the reference to the Freedmen's Bureau or to the Constitution, but it sums up uh, an attitude in the 1860s and 70s, which is, uh, I think it'll, it'll bear some scrutiny and, uh, and is worth some attention. Well, I mean, again, you're, you're talking about someone who says he was glad he fought against the Union, a, a defeated Southerner, but... Uh, some some of our our northern or western uh, listeners, Dr. Fleming, might might ask: Are you are you surely saying that you we should hate the Constitution? Uh, isn't isn't the idea of being a conservative? Doesn't the idea of being a conservative have something to do with reverence for our structures or, or founding documents, things like that? You know, it's interesting that um, in this respect, and for, first of all, the uh, the, uh, the answer is certainly yes, but. Southerners uh, who listen to this version and uh, some of the other versions online, they don't like it either. They have they have convinced themselves uh, that um, a Southern patriot wouldn't have said this in the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And in fact, uh, they mistake some of the information on the label to say, oh, well, it was written in 1914. Actually, what was written in 19, what was published in 1914 was a memoir by somebody who knew uh, the author. No, I mean, people, and and it's clear to me that uh, Major Randolph was not a redneck speaking broken English, but he wrote this song uh, to express what those kinds of people were saying. It's, It's written in persona. The reason um, I think it's important is that worship of the Constitution, reverence for the Constitution, is a form of idolatry. It's it's like um, people 
the, the, it's not the worship of a living God, but of something dead, inanimate, and and uh, which which is what idolatry is. It's worshiping sticks and stones and things made by hand. And nothing today in the 21st century could be deader than the Constitution of 1787. And to give a lot of reference, a reverence for the Constitution, and to use the language of talk radio, of Mark Levin or Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity, on and on and on about the, the, the greatness of the Constitution, it's a little bit like Christians who worship the Bible. They don't worship God, they worship the Bible. And they read into the Bible whatever absurd or hateful, ridiculous meaning they like. And they can use it to justify, for example, the prohibition of alcohol, they can use it to, to justify polygamy, easy divorce, or uh, or genocide, depending on the passages which they uh, they select. So it's it it has this this reverence, this worship of a dead, outdated, outmoded, un un really unconsulted document uh, has some very dreadful consequences if you're trying to build resistance to the regime that destroyed the Constitution. When you're saying idolatry and this worship, I'm also wondering about the Pledge of Allegiance, this idea of pledging allegiance to this flag, and that, the, yeah. that these objects uh, for Americans are very much part of a religious gap that was filled. So, so we have uh, worship towards this document, we have worship towards this flag. These symbols have come to have religious meaning for us. Yeah, well, the, the Pledge of Allegiance is a particularly odious thing to require children. First of all, you're, you're pledging allegiance to a symbol. It's like your, what's the story of William Tell. They were supposed to revere the, uh, the governor's hat or something, and, uh, or the statue of the emperor in the ancient world. I mean, this is, it is, it is openly idolatrous, and the song, which, uh, I'm sorry, the pledge itself, you know, uh, one nation indivisible, which is, of course, contradicts the the both the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. And by the way, the Declaration of Independence too. There's nothing indivisible about this union. By its own nature, it was divisible, and it's, it was composed by, of course, a Unitarian, uh, probably a non-believing Unitarian, but a new Unitarian whose conception of the deity was that was indivisible too, because there's no Trinity. If conservatives want to do something like uh, want to make a symbolic gesture, they're always calling to put up the Ten Commandments in courtrooms. I would say the first move would be to, to get rid of the Pledge of Allegiance because it is it is a form of particularly nasty idolatry. So leaving that aside, because I feel that we could do another episode on that, Dr. Yes. Blum, the Pledge of Allegiance. The the idea of conservatism, again, other than reverence for objects, is the idea of restoring things that are worthy. And if if the object is to restore, how how can you contextualize uh, the song and our discussion so far today? Yeah. Well, I think it would be easier to restore the Stuarts to their rightful throne in England. Or, as the Greeks used to want to do, what they called the Megali Idea, the great idea to make Constantinople, Constantinople the capital of a revived East Roman Empire. Or, for that matter, to teach uh, the current Pope to respect the Catholic tradition. Even, those are all improb gross improbabilities, but I think they'd be more likely than uh, restoring the Constitution of 1787. 
When a living tradition has died, then it is only invoked, not by people who actually believe in the old tradition, but it's invoked by either by pious and superstitious people who don't know any better. Uh, They're trying to support a vanished order, but mostly it's by cynical opportunists who want to turn that tradition into an instrument of oppression. During World War II, of course, when Stalin uh, was being invaded, Stalin's Russia was being invaded by Germany, he, he called upon the Russia, pious Russian Orthodox believers to defend Holy Mother Russia in a great patriotic war, invoking all the traditional language of the Russian patriotism and Christianity. To, 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 and he, of course, Stalin wasn't even a Russian, he was a Georgian. Uh, Napoleon appealed to the royalist traditions when he was trying to consolidate the gains of the French Revolution and centralize power in himself. In, in Britain, of course, the great conservative tradition there, they, they invoke the glorious revolution as the foundation of constitutional monarchy and a constitutional order. Actually, the glorious revolution is the basis for parliamentary tyranny. Because within a few generations, they had, because of the expulsion of the Stuarts and Parliament summoning a foreign king to rule over them, uh, they 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 concluded that no tradition mattered and that anything which Parliament wanted to do was licit. In other words, there were no barriers anymore to to their power. Now. Um, it's a, an, another example might be uh, under the Roman Empire from Augustus on for the next hundred or so years, the uh, defenders of the empire insisted that they were defending the, Repu- the, the republic and they maintained republican forms, although at least in that case, the republican forms of having consuls and and uh, that having a, a legal system uh, did restrain uh, the imperial monarchy. But in this case that we're dealing with, in the case of the constitutional foundation of the American order, just like it's Humpty Dumpty, that constitution cannot be set up again by all the king's horses or by all the collective intellectual firepower of conservative jurists and the membership of the Federalist Society. Well, people, again, Dr. Lemmy, people are going to talk about the idea of the ideal of the Constitution. So yes, we've had these things happen, the so-called glorious revolution, the, the, the fact that the Stuarts have been banished from their rightful throne, as any good Jacobite knows. The, the ideal of the Constitution, is that something that we can restore? Is that something that we should, should look back to and, and really argue for? I certainly spent a lot of years arguing this point, and, um, and it can be useful But we have to be very careful. We have to be very precise in stating the principles that that lie behind various provisions of the Constitution. For example, that lie behind the First Amendment. And we have to state openly and positively that they have been turned upside down. So, for example, a provision of the First Amendment that says that... um, you know, freedom of speech can't be abridged, that the uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of, uh, of uh, religion, etc. These are prohibitions on the federal government acting to involve themselves in the religion or free speech or r- rights of assembly within the states. Today, of course, it's used to justify the power of the federal government to override uh, the governments and the will of states, cities, counties, and, and the people at large. And um, so we could 
use this language if we're talking to the kind of wooden-headed conservatives who have to be talked to like uh, kindergarten children. Um, If we're going to talk about as grown-ups, we have to understand that a revolution has taken place, which has destroyed all this and made it pretty irrelevant. Just go back to the song. The good old rebel in the song, the Kaiser character, he's obviously not the real author. He hated the Constitution, the Declaration, the Glorious Union, because these were three slogans that had been used for decades to prepare for the invasion of the southern states and for looting their property, violating their women, an aspect of the war that's rarely talked about today. Uh, the, The massive rape engaged in by the Union Army, mostly against black women, and I guess that's supposed to make it all right. Uh, and the, a war that destroyed the way of life of a large number of Americans and made them slaves. What the, what the good old rebel understood at the end of the 19th century, that's what decent, patriotic, God-fearing Americans should have understood by the end of the 20th century. Namely, the United States has been turned upside down. It has been made an instrument of not only of destroying the old order, but of oppressing the citizens. To invoke it today for a hundred years or more of terrible misuse would be a little bit like a Jew discovering the positive side of Nazism, or for that matter, a Palestinian endorsing Zionism. When an originally wholesome and positive institution has been co-opted by an enemy and made to serve as an agent of oppression, it only demoralizes resistance to continue to revere it. Well, and this goes. This takes us back to the idea of original intent and and what the framers wanted. But I suppose if we come from your your hindsight portion here, Doctor Fleming, could we argue that the Constitution was not built to to encapsulate a country with fifty states, two of which are way far away from our our contiguous borders? That it's simply not a document built for the complexities of such a superstate. Well, that's certainly true. One of the problems with the argument made uh, by conservatives, that is the original intent argument, is that um, it's as if they want to pretend that the country hasn't changed, and it's changed uh, changed incredibly. And they also want to say that what really matters is what the dra- the framers thought, the founders thought, like the the uh, the the what Hamilton and Madison thought they were doing when they drafted uh, uh, both the Constitution and the Federalist. That really doesn't count. It doesn't matter because what what matters is, as Clyde Wilson, following along with such along the arguments used by our old friend Mel Bradford, what. What he's pointed out is that what matters is the will of the people within the states acting through their legislatures when they ratified it. We know more or less what uh, what was intended then, and that if we're looking for original intentions, then it's the intentions of the ratifiers, not of the framers. Well, then are, are you... Are you saying that the interpretation of the Constitution should be based on the intent of, of states and citizens who adopted it? Well, yes and no, 
Yes, if we're viewing the Constitution as a set of basic principles or the basic principles that underlie it. Above all, for example, that sovereignty has to be divided, not just among the three branches of the federal government, but between that government and the states. So, yes, when we're looking at how people uh, regarded the Constitution as they ratified it. But no, if we think that it is wise or possible to restrict a government in the 21st century to the functions it had for a small confederation of rustic peoples. Interpreting the Constitution is a lot like interpreting Scripture. Traditional Christians realize that uh, anyone who takes the Old Testament Old Testament literally can end up defending all sorts of terrible things, polygamy, genocide, or the immoral morality we find in the Pentateuch that teaches, teaches Christians that, for example, despoiling pagans is a good idea, that cheating and robbing people is okay as long as they don't belong to your religion. So what we do as Christians is we read the Old Testament in light of the New, and then when there are problems in scriptures, we look first to the apostles and early fathers, and as heresies came up, we looked to the, the church councils and, and great fathers and, and, and theologians who uh, is reestablished orthodoxy. Church customs, of course, have evolved. We no longer sit around at a common table. There, there are all sorts of things that have had to change in, in the outward ceremonies of the church, just as things change as, a, as you grow from babyhood. And the Church of the Apostles is, is the church in its infancy. As we grow from babyhood into adulthood, of course, we wear different clothes. You know, when we're a child, we speak as a child. When we grow, when we grow to be a man, we, we put away childish things, as St. Paul tells us. On the other hand, the basic principles don't change. Marriage, parenthood, the punishment of criminals, our understanding of Jesus as both man and God. So if you, if you use the same, apply the same sort of argument to understanding the Constitution, we look first to the so-called founding generation and to great men of the 19th century on, on both sides of issues like Calhoun and Webster. We stick to principles of limited government and we view with suspicion all attempts to extend the power of the federal government at the expense of states, counties, cities, families, churches. But we wouldn't condemn all extensions of power simply because they're innovations, because then we'd end up like the Amish. Well, electricity and automobiles aren't mentioned in the Bible, therefore they're forbidden to us. No, the, the, the government has had to change. So is it simply loose interpretations or the, the living, quote-unquote, constitution that you condemn? Well, no. As, um, as I've been trying to say, constitutional traditions do have to evolve, just as the English common law evolved. Otherwise, if you try to say, well, we're going to fix a legal tradition at a certain point, then it's like fixing the membership of a society or a club. It, it starts to die. There are certain innovations in the Constitution which are evil and have to be condemned as evil, and people still have to keep up the memory of how evil they are so that we can overturn them. The 14th Amendment, for example, which redefined uh, citizenship and, uh, and nationalized the Constitution. The 16th Amendment, which imposed a, a federal income tax. The 17th Amendment, which is, provides for the direct election of senators, which takes away the rights of the states to decide how they're going to elect <clears throat> their senators. Uh, the 18th Amendment, which is obscene prohibition of alcohol. The 26th Amendment, which gives 18-year-olds the right to vote, as if you know, 18-year-olds hardly know how to tie their shoes these days, much less, uh, much less vote, and it's not up to the federal government to determine these things. 
uh, it's up to the states to determine who they regard, whom they regard as a qualified voter. So all of those uh, contradict the fundamentals of our constitutional order. We should oppose them. We should oppose them vocally and constantly. But uh, and and so yes, that would be a kind of restorationist aspect of of, uh, of making sense out of the constitution. Okay, so we're going to go into Dr. Fleming's alternate universe. We're going to repeal all these amendments, the 14th, the 16th, the 17th, the 18th, the 26th. Would that be good enough for you? Would we then approve of the Constitution? No, not at all. Um, because, first of all, yes, it is an alternative universe, because if we had the power to do that, we'd have the power to take away our country, to, back, to get it back from the politicians and the media. But we don't have that power, and we're never going to get that power, at least not in my lifetime, your lifetime, or your children's grandchildren's lifetime. So, so the, the, my first rule of politics is to quit yourself. As I, as I tell people over and over when they ask me why I'm busy reading some 2,000-year-old book, and I'll say because <clears throat> I don't want to leave this world as ignorant and dumb as I was when I entered it. So not lying to yourself is, is the beginning of wisdom. The problem does not lie with this or that amendment or this or that Supreme Court ruling, much less with the actually pretty wholesome idea of a living constitution. The problem lies with the entirely modern vision of a constitution that is shared by all leftists and liberals, and in fact probably by a majority of the leading conservative thinkers on the constitution. So it's that revolutionary notion that uh, we have to oppose. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a fringe group, um, maybe it's only in the United States, but this idea of we are church. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that means. I mean, uh, you, 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 you listen to that, and you think, okay, well, I don't know what you're talking about. If we are church, then church is nothing, right? I, um, yes. So, this gets us maybe to some some practical applications. I'm in the United States as we're recording this for a couple of weeks um, on some personal business, and I note that several places I go to, the the, the bathrooms are labeled with, with different. Uh, Things and, and objects. I'm waiting for it to say it's dinosaur friendly so that dinosaurs can use the bathroom as well. But um, I've been somewhat insulated from this in Europe. Can you, can you talk about the relationship of, of how these sorts of practical issues relate to what we've been talking about today? Yeah, because uh, by uh, looking at some of the practical questions, we can then understand what's happening to us. Um, you know, um, Two or three years ago, the idea of uh, transgender rights within school, public schools or bathrooms so that, for example, a 12-year-old boy could decide he was a 12-year-old girl and, uh, and then uh, go in, into the ladies' room when, whenever he felt like it, well, this would have been pretty much laughed out of court. Now, to oppose uh, transgender uh, bathroom usage is to be a, a real dinosaur, somebody who is retrograde, and it, it's and they would say that's unconstitutional. Another thing that's unconstitutional is uh, President Trump's two attempts to restrict uh, visits into the United States 
from uh, people living in countries promoting Islamic terrorism. They say over and over, uh, this group called Americans United uh, says this is, this is unconstitutional. Now, I don't find any references to Muslims, for example, per se, in the Constitution, and I don't find any references to uh, that say the government cannot restrict entry into the country by groups they designate as potentially causing a problem. Of course, there were no Muslims in the United States, despite uh, Barack Obama's insistence that they were with us from the beginning. Uh, The only uh, recorded instance I can find of early Islamic influence on the United States is, of course, the Barbary pirates who attacked our shipping and and practiced acts of terrorism. Funny how these things don't change. So... uh, so this, it's, it's unconstitutional to, uh, to deny children the right to declare a new gender. It's unconstitutional to prevent people from terrorist countries entering. Uh, uh, the, it's unconstitutional uh, to uh, make any distinction. Uh, but in, uh, in marriage, for example, if, uh, if a man wants to marry a, a man, that, that he he's now has that right. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's unconstitutional to try to, to deny it that. Just as it became unconstitutional in the 1960s and 70s to say that there was a difference between men and women and that uh, you could have different rules, different, uh, different procedures governing, obviously, quite, uh, the sexes are quite different in many respects. So if you, if you look over what has happened in the past hundred years, what you discover quickly is that what is on the mind of the so-called liberal interpreters of the Constitution is not simply that they're trying to accommodate themselves to a changing reality. They are, they are trying to change the reality by, through, through legislation and, above all, through reinterpreting the Constitution. Because what they start out with is not a, is not a look backward at what the Constitution has, has meant to generations of Americans and how we've reacted to it and how it has been a living tradition. No, no, they start, uh, maybe a hundred years ago, they start with the Communist Manifesto, which denies any differences between social classes, between men and men, between, uh, and between rich and poor countries. And that the goal of revolution is to, uh, is to, to, is to wipe out all these in inequalities. So that the Constitution for them is to uh, reach this utopian future. Now, every generation, you know, finds new examples of inequality, the inequality of, 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 uh, of people of color, the inequality of people who come from foreign countries, the inequality of women, the inequality of homosexuals, the inequality of children, the inequality and, 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 and very quickly of transgenders. And it's, and it's now getting to the point that you hear in many parts of the country uh, that, that not only do animals have civil rights under the Constitution, I think in San Francisco you're not allowed to refer to yourself as a master or an owner <laughs> of a pet, you are a guardian of a pet. And, and if you misuse your guardianship, you're liable to prosecution. But also, there's a now an argument breaking out about the misuse of robots. I, imagine if robots are used in a dangerous uh, place like a mine or to detect explosives ter- or, you know, for terrorists. Well, this is 
what I heard from one uh, lofty academic, this is the way Negro slaves were used in the 19th centuries, and we don't want to make that mistake again, do we? So machines, not just animals, and that's, by the way, there's a move to make apes, it's, it would just hit, it's just hitting the courts now, to, make, to give apes the same civil rights as, uh, as human beings. So um, the, the goal of the, this, const, this style of constitutional interpretation is not to adjust the circumstance, it's to revolutionize, to overturn human nature, and, and that that is what is defined as constitutional. So it's always advancing ever more rapidly, and that is why the Constitution is the enemy to, for us, for normal people, because it is the justification for all these revolutionary changes. And that's why, like the good old rebel, we should be singing, I hate the Constitution. <laughs> all right. So you're at, a, you're at a cocktail party. You're at a dinner party, Dr. Fleming. And you bring up the fact that you hate the Constitution. What do you think is going to be the reception and what's the, the best way to really, because this is something we talk about on all of our podcasts, is how to intelligently engage with people on this. So the, most people are going to react badly to you saying or singing, I hate the Constitution. What might be another tack we might take if we really want to, to engage in this in a meaningful way? Well, I'm certain not recommending that uh, you go to a cocktail party, much less to a family reunion or in coffee hour after church and uh, start uh, repeating the lines from I'm a good old rebel or explaining why the Constitution is the enemy. Um, on, the, uh, on the other hand, what uh, the way to open these conversations is to begin pointing out the, uh, the historical truth for example, that the Bill of Rights was not written to guarantee individual protections against any form of government. It was actually to defend the corporate liberties of states and communities against the federal government. Therefore, almost everything it does, that is the federal government does in the name of, in, of enforcing the Bill of Rights, is, is wrong and unconstitutional. You will then, if a person is a, is a lawyer, you'll hear about the 14th Amendment. It is then time to point out that the 14th Amendment was passed illegally. They never got the proper votes in Congress, so what they did is declare that a simple majority would do, not the majority required for a uh, passing an amendment, and that they had to then also bring new states into the Union in, or, uh, in condition upon re-entering the Union was uh, an endorsement of the 14th Amendment. So, I mean, if, the, if we want to say the 14th Amendment is law, it's got to be passed again, because it is, as, as Forrest MacDonald pointed out very decisively in, in an academic historical article, uh, it, it, was, it was not legally passed. Um, and I think we can argue, you can begin by arguing the historical case, and then as we come around, and if, if people are beginning to listen, you can then point out, you know, the sad truth is that today the Constitution means whatever the ruling class wants it to mean, and it's used to deprive you of the very rights it's supposed to protect. My old friend Stephen Presser used to ha had a clever line when, uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court. He said, today the Constitution means whatever Sandy O'Connor wakes up thinking, uh, whatever she thinks it means that morning. 
because she changed her mind back and forth, back and forth. She never had any coherent principle. And, uh, but she was the swing vote, as, uh, as uh, others, other liberal Republicans have been uh, the swing vote. And of course, every every four years, we're told we have to vote Republican because he's going to the the president is going to name some sterling uh, right wing uh, original uh, intent uh, uh, justice. And of course, it always turns out to be uh, somebody who who changes his coat as soon as he enters the court. There are a few exceptions, like uh, like Scalia and and uh, possibly Clarence Thomas, but beyond that, these these people you. It is a mistake to put your trust not just in princes but in judges. The, this used to be the we used to say, quoting Burke, we had a government of law, not of men. But what I hear from conservatives all the time is we need the right man in power to make the right decisions. No, we need to deny them the power to make those decisions. Hmm. Well, I think. It's been. You sound dubious, Stephen. Well, because I just I've seen so many people try to make this argument over the years. If we just get the right judges on the court, then this is going to change. It says, well, no, because you're going back to the idea that this is some you solve a cultural problem by passing a law, right? Until we get people to understand that these are babies and that you don't kill your babies, it's not going to matter what laws you pass, right? You have to change the civilization and that cannot be, you can't change the civilization solely by law. You can influence the civilization by law, but again, as you say, uh, we were going to get this great Supreme Court justice and everything's going to turn around. It's just ridiculous. Well, since we know the heart of man is desperately wicked above all things, uh, certain things are not going to change. And no matter, good laws enforce the conscience of the community. They don't create that conscience. In the specific case of abortion, you know, by, uh, by pretending that it's a, simply a political and legal issue, we, we run, uh, the, uh, the right to life movement has run into all sorts of absurdities. For example, back in the 80s, we heard uh, a lot of argument that, uh, well, uh, Roe v. Wade was just like uh, the Dred Scott decision. Excuse me, denying, denying some civil rights to black people is not the same as killing black people. And the, the, it, is, it was an obscene comparison. And you hear it over and over uh, all the time that the, the whole language of the right to life movement is that, is that what matters is that the government isn't protecting the legal rights of the unborn. No, the problem is that there are women who will murder their own children. Surely that's a. I mean, what if I were a judge? I, 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 if I were a judge, I certainly would not would not uphold abortion rights. But you know, I wouldn't go to sleep at night thinking, oh, I'm part of such an evil regime. No, if I had killed my own child, that would be an unendurable burden. And yet we have millions of women who think it's funny or think that somehow it's a it's it's a right. So yeah. It, and you can across the board, whether it's gay marriage, you know, the National Review argument that, well, if marriage is a good thing, then everybody should be able to have it. I mean, if they begin by not understanding the, the moral nature or even the biological nature of a tradition or institution, and then, of course, they cave in on all the issues because they, they, they make them strictly legal or political. 
So our uh, motto from today's show is Nolite confidere in judicibus would be the exactly the, 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 the conclusion to today's <laughs> show. Anything else? Put you want not to, your trusted judges. Put not your trusted judges. Anything else you'd like to add before we close out today's episode, Doctor Funny? Not a, not a bit. Just go 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 out and and act on act on this and and uh, try try not to make Aunt Sally angry. <laughs> make sure to go out there and and be a good old rebel. That's right. All right. Thanks, Doctor Fleming, for your time. I hate the Constitution, this great republic too. I hate the Freedmen's Bureau in uniforms of blue. I hate the nasty eagle with all his brags and fuss. The lion Theban Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.